Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic Church. If this is your first time listening, let me introduce you to me, myself, and the whole purpose and point of this podcast. I'm Kay Albert Little. I'm an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism. And this podcast is really born out of one particular idea. See, it began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me, an evangelical in my early 20s, on a deep dive into church history. I looked into the Bible, the history of the biblical canon, into the Reformation, into the early church fathers, how the first Christians worshipped, and why how I worshipped as an evangelical was so different. It was there, it was then that I bumped into this thing called the Catholic Church. It's inevitable in a study of church history, and there it was, looming large. It was then, as I began to read from what Catholic theologians said about what the Catholic Church actually believed, it was then that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church, was oftentimes dead wrong. It was based on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I sit down with a real Catholic thinker to have a real Catholic conversation about a real Catholic topic from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Reimer, a medieval church historian to talk about the Reformation, and to talk about how to talk about the Reformation. It's a fantastic conversation. It truly is. I've made a fantastic new friend in Dr. Reimer, and I'm so pleased to have the, had the chance to talk to him. We dive deep into the roots of the Reformation and how the Catholic Church responded to the Reformation, what was behind it all, what the Reformers were thinking, and what Catholics were thinking in return and, and in response. And my goal here with this conversation was to have a real, genuine, honest, and, and, and true, fair, faithful conversation about the Reformation to equip Catholics and non-Catholic Christians to be able to talk about this thing fairly, to build bridges, to understand our, our commonalities and our common history in order to, to work to help to communicate better. It's really an important thing on, on this podcast to present real and accurate facts about the Catholic Church, but also about our, our, our shared church history. That's this episode in a nutshell, how to talk about the Reformation. And it was a great discussion. I hope you enjoy it. This podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash who help to underpin the mission of this whole thing. You guys are fantastic, and thank you to everybody in that community. It's lovely, it's growing, and I'm so grateful to be able to do this thing and to have these conversations. Thank you so much. Without any further ado, here's my wonderful, fantastic conversation with Dr. Jonathan Reimer. Please listen and enjoy.
<laughs> Hi, friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Thanks for being here. We're going to have a fantastic discussion this week. I'm joined by Dr. Jonathan Reimer. Dr. Reimer is the incoming John H. Van Gordon Assistant Professor of History at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Cambridge and is an early modern historian interested, as he says, in the religious, political, and social changes that we call the English Reformation. It's going to be a fantastic discussion. Dr. Reimer, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show and hello. Well, hello. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> well, look, I had asked you to send me a little little uh, bio to introduce uh, you on this program, and I want to be out front right away because this is fantastic. This is exactly what I want to do with this episode because you wrote back to me uh, a little, little snippet here, and you talked about the idea that as a student of the Reformation, you said that you strongly believe that Catholics and Protestants need to be more aware of this history. To engage in what you said is the shared past that we both need to acknowledge our genuine disagreements and work toward unity. I love that. And that's exactly the goal of this episode, I think, and one of the big goals of this podcast. You know, I, I say in the beginning of this podcast, every episode, that the goal of this thing, the whole purpose and point is to kind of fill in the gaps between what people think they know about Catholicism and, and, and what we actually believe, and to kind of explain that, that the roots of our faith, the Catholic faith, but then to be able to fairly talk about these kind of historical things in the right context on, on both sides. So I think you, know, you put that so eloquently in the note you sent me back, and so I wanted to share that because... That is where we're going. So, so thanks for doing that. And uh, this is going to be a fun episode, I think. <laughs> I hope so. I, I think so as well. <laughs> All right. The, the first thing I want to ask you, I want to put it this way. The Reformation, as we both know, is widely misunderstood by both Protestants and, and Catholics. On one hand, you know, I was an evangelical before I became Catholic. Uh, l- listeners to this show may have known this story a little bit. And I would have understood the Reformation as like this necessary scraping off of the barnacles, this tired vessel called the Catholic Church. Surely, maybe Jesus began this thing called Catholicism, but it was far too politicized and ritualized and more like the Pharisees than the early Christians. So from that perspective, the Reformation was necessary. And then from the Catholic point of view, I think too often we have this kind of triumphalism that looks down on this mess called Protestantism with these thousands of different denominations and fractures and church splits and these big personalities and peg it all back on Martin Luther and these early reformers and blame these egomaniacs for splitting apart the church that was once united, (laughs) right? So I want to be fair. I want to live up to the aims of this podcast. I want to start by looking at the roots of the Reformation. And I know this question could take an entire hour just by itself uh, to summarize fairly with both of these perspectives in mind. But I wonder if we can kind of try and pare it down and, and be fair to both sides and, and explain, you know, what was the Reformation and, and how did this whole thing start? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's that's that is in some ways the the sort of pressing question that one has to start with in digging into this. And I think, you know, 
asking what is the Reformation is kind of essential because I think we often get it mixed up because we speak of the Reformation in a really singular sense. We talk of like this sort of period of history as the Reformation um, when actually it's multiple things that, that kind of overlap. Um, often when I teach this to students, I, I use the kind of the, the, the alliterative uh, three R's. I say the Reformation is a reform, it's a rupture, and it's a revolution. Um, and I think, you know, you could add to that the complexity of you have various Protestant reform- reformations. You have even some Protestant reformations that not all Protestants agree on, the, the groups that we kind of call Anabaptists. You know, again, we have we have a lot of Anabaptist folks, or at least their descendants in Canada. I have an, I have an Anabaptist name um, in, in Reimer. We have, you know, a kind of Catholic reformation or a counter-reformation that happens as well. And I think trying to use these categories to get a basic sense of, okay, well, the Reformation is these three things. It's a reform, it's a rupture, and it's a revolution is, a really, is, I think, a helpful way of at least categorizing in our mind, well, what's going on here? Um, in that you have some moves, again, from different individuals and from different perspectives around, well, how do we reform the church? How do we fix some problems in the church? Then there's a break. There's this break within Western Christianity that's never really been healed, such that you have descent, you know, sort of the spiritual descendants of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin that are, you know, going to different churches. And then you have kind of the the Catholic church on, on, on the other side. So that's your reform. That's your rupture. And then the revolution is really, you have a revolution that's going on in a broader sense, kind of in, in society, you have sort of changes in how worship is structured. So you have something like the idea that you would have diocesan seminaries. That's how you train priests. That's something with that's really popularized in the 16th century. It's you know something that reformers like Charles Bromeo in Milan push for, that you have uh, things like the Council of Trent pushing for as well, as well as, again, many of the other features of things that we talk about as Christianity, even a lot of ways in which we read the Bible as like a printed text uh, that one might read in church, but one might also easily read in a Bible study somewhere else. Those are in a lot of ways innovations of the Reformation as well. So you have some sort of political and social revolutions or just um, sort of changes. And the problem with talking about the Reformation is you really, you're talking about all of those things at once. And I think, you know, we wouldn't talk about it in the singular sense, except that we don't really have a better way to talk about it. So if someone comes up with one, let's go with that. Then when we kind of move on to the second part of your question, which is sort of, you know, how did this begin? You know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, you know, I had a university professor who drilled into me this kind of schema of causation, that you have underlying causes, you have intensifying causes, and you have catalytic causes. So you have, you know, kind of, if you were to use the metaphor of a, of a war or something like that, you have the like long-term animosities, say, between nations or something like that as your, fun, as your you know, underlying cause, your intensifying cause. You might have, I don't know, economic rivalry or political socioeconomic crisis. And then normally, you know, you have a catalytic cause. You have, you know, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand that kicks off World War One, or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and the Reformation, I think, is, is very much like that. Um, you do have these kind of fundamental underlying causes. Um, and, and really, part of it is, is that the Western church, despite uh, a lot of features of it that are really healthy, has other features that are, you know, exceptionally messy. Um, you know, you have the, the kind of end of the 14th century from, I think it's 1378 to 
14, 17, you have like a rift within the Western church where you have a Pope and an anti-Pope. Um, after, after 1410, you've got, you've got three Popes. Um, and so you really do have some kinds of fundamental problems that people are experiencing. Like what, you know, religious worship is, is not in, in some ways, um, the only metric of what's going on. There's kind of the politics of religion and various other factors as well. I think also there is the sense that there is some sort of real corruption in practices. I think one of the things that I find striking about studying the Reformation is people from basically all camps agree that, that Rome really isn't thriving. Again, we, we, we see this captured in particular in Luther goes to Rome in 1510 on business through the Augustinian order. And he's, he's quite frankly horrified at what he sees, kind of the debauchery and the sort of irreligiousness, you know, so these different priests offering masses, but seemingly do so in, in sort of mocking ways, changing the Latin um, and sort of playing around with it as if it doesn't really matter, but it's their day job. Um, and he has this kind of horrifying experience that he, that he then writes about later in life. One of the things that's fascinating, though, is that this kind of experience isn't only an experience that someone like Luther has. Um, there's, there's a famous anecdote that I like in Ignatius of Loyola's autobiography. Ignatius of Loyola, of course, you know, the founder of the Jesuits, the writer of the spiritual exercises, and in some ways kind of an anti-Luther. If you wanted someone whose who's thought in a lot of ways is really opposed to Luther, um, if Luther thinks that there's justification by faith alone, you know, Ignatius really thinks, you know, you're relying on grace, but there are exercises that you can do that will help, you know, make your spiritual life more healthy. So in some ways, they're, they're, they're opposing figures. Um, Ignatius recounts this story in his, his autobiography, which is kind of dictations that he gave to some of his disciples at, at, later on in his life. He tells the story of telling a really pious Catholic Spanish woman um, about his plans to go to Rome. And she doesn't think very much of this plan, nor does she really think much of what's going on in Rome. Um, and she eventually kind of tells him, you should just go to the Holy Land instead. Um, so I think, I think that there is, you know, I mentioned those examples really just to say that there are some sort of fundamental problems, uh, that are going on that, that the Reformation, um, is, is not necessarily, is not the kind of the Catholic story that the Reformation is itself a mistake, um, is a little bit hard to justify. There clearly are uh, problems that need to be redressed. So if that's kind of the underlying cause then you also have this sort of intensifying cause, which, which is that if the kinds of problems that I've talked about are, are particularly seen in Rome and, and elsewhere in Western uh, Christianity, the solution that starts to be offered kind of comes in the form of recovering the heritage of both classical authors and the early church. So you have these sort of re Renaissance humanists digging up texts um, whether that's, you know, critical editions of Jerome and Augustine um, or really the Bible itself. So the, the kind of great example of this in innovation is uh, Erasmus puts together his Novum Instrumentum in 1516, this, uh, you know, kind of interlinear uh, or not quite interlinear, you've got the sort of the Latin text on the text of the Vulgate on one side, and you've got the Greek text on the other, kind of compiled from manuscripts and then critical commentary. You've got early, earlier than, than that, you've got a Complutensian uh, polyclod, which is a, um, again, a similar critical edition of the whole Bible that's done in Alcala in Spain. So really you have this move. And again, the whole kind of Renaissance thrust is to say, 
what we need to do to solve the social, political, and religious ills of today is to dig back into the sources of early Christianity in a similar way that humanists are suggesting. The way to fix politics is to, to read more of the great classical writers, to read, you know, Cicero and Seneca and, and all of these others, uh, these other figures. So in some ways, you know, those are your kind of basic causes. And what's interesting is at this point, we have kind of some of the birth of a reformation, but Luther's not involved. We, you know, we, there probably did need to be a reformation, but it certainly didn't need to be the reformation that we've had. Um, and so when we come to Luther, the sort of catalytic cause, which is this sort of explosive controversy that, that if people know anything about the reformation, that tends to be, uh, what they know. Actually, a lot of the larger wheels are in motion. So, I think, you know, I, I mentioned it this way to say that people that would tell a certain sort of sectarian story using Luther, uh, so, you know, that Luther came and he fixed everything or Luther came and he ruined everything, I think miss the deeper uh, machinations that are going on that, that make Luther's controversy what it, what it is. Again, uh, we probably don't need to, be, to belabor this because this is, this is, you know, the thing that I think a lot of people do tend to know. But essentially what happens is in 1517, you have a controversy that breaks out over indulgences. And it's worth being very specific when we talk about indulgences because I think a lot of people have weird ideas about what those are. <laughs> and a lot of it is, is based from the polemic of the day. You know, uh, the kinds of disinformation that get shot about in the Reformation make getting to the heart of what these issues are really difficult. I mean, they're living in an age not unlike our own, right? That's going through an information revolution, but that also is coming up with new ways to blast your opponents to obscure facts. And that's something that the 16th century has to interact with, similar to the way we do. You know, woodcuts are kind of like the early modern tweet. Um, <laughs> you, know, you can you can write this really offensive thing that loads of people are going to engage with, but doesn't really deal with the details. But essentially at their best, what, what indulgences were and, and are, are essentially their exemptions from the kind of penances involved in, uh, in confession. So, so in the Middle Ages, confession normally has four parts, right? Contrition, confession, absolution, and satisfaction. So, you know, if you put this in layman's terms, you feel sorry about what you did. You, you go confess it to the best of your ability. You're absolved by a priest. Um, and then they, they, you know, they assign you some sort of penance to, to sort of restore that relationship. Um, you know, God has, has truly forgiven your sin. But in terms of the restoration of both, you know, where you sit in terms of the sort of distortion of yourself and your personhood that might have been caused by the sin and the relationship that you have to the church, some satisfaction has to be made. And that's, you know, kind of theology that goes back to Augustine, if, if not further. And indulgences become a way for satisfying that sort of fourth category, the satisfaction, the, the penances. And essentially what they are, again, at their best, is they're essentially a way that penitents can substitute some other pious act for uh, the kinds of things that a confessor might suggest. So it means that you can pay for part of the building of a church. You can, you know, you might pay for a, uh, a bridge between two towns that really need a bridge if the local bishop has, has paid for that. And these are things that really start to exist in sort of from the high middle ages onward. Um, now at their worst, 
they're hawked as a kind of spiritual get out of jail free card um, that often can can apply to people who, who seem to have lived horrible lives, had absolutely zero contrition. Um, and it's kind of a, really just a way of the church raising money in a fairly unscrupulous way. And I think they're, they're both very scrupulous indulgent sellers and they're very unscrupulous indulgent sellers. And Luther encounters uh, one in his native uh, Saxony who's, who's preaching an indulgence and he's preaching an indulgence that's, geared towards rebuilding or actually like really building uh the the great basilica of saint peter's in rome and it's a plenary indulgence it's going to again kind of forgive all of those um satisfactions that that one might need to make um basically what happens to, to cut a long story short long story short uh luther um, produces uh, an, acumen, an academic document, this sort of um, 95 theses against the sale of indulgences that's going to be debated at the kind of backwater university that he's, that he's a part of. Now, early the next year, that document kind of hits the information bloodstream of the empire, and it gets translated into German. It gets reprinted across the Holy Roman Empire. And so you basically have this kind of... Uh, this kind of academic text becomes a kind of uh, a cry for broader reform um, in a way that nobody is really expecting. Then what happens over the next couple of years is you have a kind of escalating of the situation both externally and internally. So Luther goes through a whole series of events. He has a famous debate with a kind of uh, a real exponent of the church, uh, Johann von Eck. And they have a famous debate at Leipzig, uh, again, one of these kind of centers of the Holy Roman Empire. Then you also have, again, a kind of famous uh, Luther is, is brought before the emperor at the Diet of Worms, the kind of assembly of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and in the process of these events, Luther kind of takes on more and more wild opinions, or at least from the, the point of view of, of many of his contemporaries. So no longer is, you know, are, are councils authoritative? Well, no, councils aren't authoritative. But is the Pope authoritative? Well, no, the Pope isn't authoritative. And so he starts to sort of formulate this kind of scripture alone, that really scripture alone is, um, is the only sort of sure means by which we can know that we're saved. Interestingly, my uh, former doctoral supervisor, Richard, Richard Rex, uh, or always my doctoral supervisor, Richard Rex, um, has written a, a really interesting little book called The Making of Martin Luther. And he, he makes an interesting point that, that kind of the way that Luther reads the Bible is actually quite similar to the way that one would read an indulgence. You have this kind of promise from God, and it's sure, and you can look at it and uh, know that it's true, as opposed to the way that a lot of medieval individuals um, would, would, have, would have read the Bible. And so you have this kind of external escalation of the things that Luther is going to say. Um, but I think also you have this change that's going on within Luther, that he's going to kind of formulate the distinctive doctrine, not only for himself, but, but basically one of the key markers that all Protestants will share, or all reformers um, that, that, you know, kind of eventually reject the Catholic Church uh, in, in some sense or another will share this idea that justification is fundamentally by faith rather than by human works, by which he means kind of any kind of effort that one might, you know, put towards achieving salvation. So 
at this point, so kind of maybe by, you know, the early 1520s, really, you know, 500 years from exactly where we are today is when you're starting to have that third or that sort of second category of like a rupture that you, know, you had this push for reform. Now it's become a rupture. And actually, Luther is going to experience in the next couple of years, this is going to start becoming a revolution. You're going to start having peasants saying, actually, we've heard some of the things you said. And those sound pretty good. But also, maybe we should overthrow the social order. Uh, you know, you're having uh, other people saying, Luther, we agree with you, but we also think maybe maybe the traditional view of baptism that you still hold, maybe that's not valid. So it's going to become an escalating revolution pretty quick. Again, that's a sort of long-winded answer to a, to a question. But again, we could spend, I think, all day talking about that. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And of course, there's so much in there that we can unpack. But I mean, the thing that... That stands out to me. I mean, first of all, is is the complexity of this thing. To simplify the Reformation, as I mean, I would have done as an evangelical, thinking about this idea of this big monolithic Catholic Church that was doing all kinds of things wrong, and then this big monolithic Reformation that came and kind of saved mm. that from something. I mean, it's it's just way more nuanced and complicated than that, and and. To make it any less so is just really to rob it of, of some really important aspects. Like you, it's not this, okay, Martin Luther, the reformers came to save this church out of this thing. As you as you say, there were things that had needed to be saved. I mean, the, it, there was a bit of a mess. <laughs> no one's going to Rome, in that sense. But uh, it can't be just simplified as this thing saving this thing from from itself, right? I mean, that, that's what my 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 first, I think, chief takeaway from kind of the roots of of the Reformation. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think this this sort of simplistic narrative of going from darkness to illumination doesn't doesn't really work, um, or or the kind of the idea that you have. Luther is on one side pressing for reform with sort of nobody else, and this monolithic church that is against reform is kind of fighting back against him. That just doesn't work as a as a paradigm. And I don't think I don't think anyone who really spends some time in these sources w- would would be able to think that. But I think it's often what we think when we don't spend time kind of reading or thinking about it. It's often the kind of thing that we heard in Sunday school somewhere or just kind of thought up, you know, it'd be hard to know where we got it from. Maybe it's from the Luther movie or, or something like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. And so it's interesting. I love how you frame this in uh, reformation, which there was necessary reform that had to happen, but then what began to happen is kind of this rupture and then a revolution versus a reform kind of within that framework. And I mean, I guess to, to me, it was kind of shocking to, and maybe it shouldn't have been shocking, but it was, it surprised me to learn that for the majority of Christian history, let's say 1500 years, we had, of course, an Orthodox kind of schism, um, you know, 500 years kind of prior to this. Um, they, they retained the framework of like bishops though, and of course the sacraments, so, of course, looked very similar to how the Catholic Church looked. The Catholic Church continued, you know, in this direction. But then, you know, you, you, you come to the Reformation and you talk about a rupture. I mean, I, I was surprised to learn how much of a rupture that was. You know, there was this way of thinking. And, it, of course, it wasn't monolithic. It wasn't that all Catholics thought the exactly the same way. But 
what happened with some of the things that Luther began to develop in his theology, it was this real rupture from, it was this brand new, kind of this novel thing that was that I mean it wasn't catered out of, of whole cloth. He he drew on other on, on sources and, and of course he had the Bible as as his chief source. But it was this rupture from how Christians had thought for the majority of church history. Is that fair to say? I mean I think the sixteenth century in particular, is this moment of just decisive change. And it's not even just located to religion. It's like a bunch of our politics, you know, you have sort of the origins of a bunch of like nation states in a, in a proper sense. You have a bunch of other changes that are happening in the same way. But I think you're right that there is, there's a shift in a bunch of the structures of um, not even just things like what do we believe, but how do we do church? What does it mean to have a larger overarching authority? And and I think one of the things that's that's fairly striking about the 16th century, in 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 terms of the sort of like the Reformation that, that comes about then, is that well, you know, even with the the break with the Orthodox in 1054, um, that really the kinds of fundamental questioning about well, what kind of relationship should the church have with the state? What, um, yeah, what is it, you know, do you have bishops in your structure? Should you have icons in your church? There's a much more wholesale um, reworking of actually, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, so I think there is, you're, you're, you've hit on the, the point that there is just a real radical change. And I think Luther sort of has the unfortunate experience of he starts out as kind of a firebrand, right? And he's proposing all of these radical changes. And then he sort of spends the second half of his career telling other reformers, no, 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 this is going too far. You know, please, your view of the Eucharist is going too far. Your view of taking down icons or removing the elements of the mass is going too far. So, again, he has this unfortunate experience of, again, being a fire starter and then, again, spending the rest of his career trying to put out certain fires that, at least from a certain point of view, are very much his fault. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I don't remember where I first heard this, but somebody said to me once that the only thing that all Protestants agree on is they don't like the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's a bit much, maybe, but sometimes our picture of the Reformation is as this kind of monolithic thing, which I've learned as I studied church history and journeyed towards Catholicism and looked at kind of the roots of this, as of course you, you have in a much deeper level than I have. <laughs> it's anything but the truth. It wasn't this kind of monolithic thing. And of course, it had different kinds of reasons why it began, as we're talking about here. I wonder, though, what we can know, what we can say about what the early reformers kind of have in common, other than their maybe dislike of the Pope, and what was maybe different about their goals and their ideals and their ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really helpful question. Um, you know, so well, well, I don't, I don't agree that you know that the only thing that Protestants or, or different reformers would have in common is a dislike for the dislike for Rome or the papacy or the Church. <laughs> I do think it's really helpful to try to take these individuals and these structures as seriously as we can on their own terms, which means highlighting a lot of difference. And I think we tend to, especially when there's contrasts, we tend to like homogenize that contrast. So on one hand, I think we're, we're tempted to want to say, well, there's a Catholic church over here and there's a Protestant church over here. And, and that, that Protestant church is actually a real misnomer and is, is kind of a, is, is a bad way to think about that history and that heritage. Um, you know, I think there's a really helpful image that comes from there's a recent book by the church historian at Durham 
Alec Ryrie, uh, just called Protestants. Again, note, note the plural there, Protestants. And at the beginning of the book, he takes an image from you know, the, the Bible translator and uh, theologian and philosopher Erasmus uh, of Rotterdam. And Erasmus talks about how he, he thinks of Protestant commentators. I think he's writing this in about the sort of 15, the sort of the, the late 1520s or something like that. And he talks about that the Protestant biblical commentators are a bit like lovers and fighters. He talks about they're, they're a bit like lovers that are just awestruck and they see their beloved everywhere. Like they just see the face of their beloved everywhere. But they're a bit like fighters too. And he uses the image, again, I think the image is basically two men in a, in a bar fight that are, are in the middle of this fight and they're casting around and they'll use anything. They'll just pull in a glass or a jug and it'll become a missile. Um, and so that's it's sort of Erasmus's pejorative, uh, his, his sort of put down to to the way that he sees certain uh, Protestants as reading scripture or and, and using it in their arguments. But uh, Ryrie uses this in I think a really helpful way in his his book, as he says, "Well, look, Protestants have always been both lovers and fighters. They're they're people who have an encounter of God, particularly in the text of the Bible, in the way that they've read that, that they're profoundly enamored with." Um, and that, that that sort of becomes so central to who they are. But also they're fighters. They're people who not only disagree with the structures that sort of predate them, they disagree with each other and are fighting all the time. So I think, you know, both sides of that, lovers and fighters, kind of need need to be taken seriously. Um, I think that there's, you know, if we, if we looked at things that are that all reformers agree on, there's probably three in particular. Um and again, I think starting with that opposition to Rome is is a really significant one. Um, think about the word Protestant. Again, you know, we use this word as kind of a discreetly religious term. But in the 16th century, it's not. It's fundamentally connected to politics and to like a particular power block. So that word is coined in 1529. There's six German princes uh, and a couple other allied cities issue a protestatio, a kind of a protest, a, a declaration against the Holy Roman Empire or emperor, who's Charles V, who's who's pressing for a more conservative religious settlement. It's kind of traditional Catholic religious settlement with a couple of accommodations, and they don't like it, and they push for this settlement. So they they start calling themselves, and others call them Protestants. And so it's interesting that the kind of continuity that we often use in terms of talking about Protestants actually comes from them as a power block in opposition to something else rather than an internal coherence. So I think that's true. The other side of the equation, though, is that, you know, you'll notice that if, if that's about 1529, we're talking that over a decade of the Reformation has already happened, at least if we're not, you know, taking it back much further as my kind of earlier answer to the question did. But even from Luther's kind of break. Um, we're talking about a decade. And the word that, you know, and again, it's a word that you and I'd probably be more more comfortable with as well, because it, it probably, you know, it has to do with, with the ways that we would have grown up as well. The word that early reformers use to describe themselves is evangelicals, evangelisch in, in, in German. And, and what they're emphasizing there, there's probably two things that are worth emphasizing. And this is what I would say would account for the sort of second and third characteristics that would sort of link all Protestants, or at least early reformers together. And the first is that they're kind of Bible-only people, that, that they believe in this idea of Scripture and Scripture over and against some other traditions. Um, it gets really messy when one starts asking, well, 
what exactly? What scripture? Or how, how does that work interpretively? Or So there are ways that that becomes complicated. But I think the idea is really we're for scripture. That's and I think that's something that's you know basically common in in their descendants for the most part today as well. Um, so that would be the sort of first side to this description of evangelical. But I think also, and, and despite the fact that many early reformers kind of make this claim of we're just reading the scripture as it is, uh, we're not importing any of our own thoughts. Well, they, they quite clearly do have a particular idea of what the gospel, of what the good news of Christianity is. So, again, that word evangelical comes from this, this Greek word, euangelion, which, again, means good news. Um, you know, it's where, where we get the word go- or gospel, what we translate as gospel. Um, lovely. Uh, I always like it during the English Reformation. They often refer to these people as gospeler. Gospeler is kind of a synonym with evangelical. Um that guy's a gospeler. And it normally means kind of what Puritan came to mean a bit later of like, well, yeah, he's a gospeler. He's a bit much. He's kind of pushing his, <laughs> pushing his views. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that's quite interesting is that, you know, they've, they've defined things as scripture alone in particular. But also, there is a particular gospel. And really, it's the gospel that sort of Luther discovers over this period in kind of the late 15 teens, early, maybe early, even early 1520s of this kind of gospel of justification by faith alone, that really believing in God's promises in the Bible is what saves you and other things don't. Um, so those would be the kinds of things that, that most early reformers agree on. They fundamentally agree that they're opposed to Rome, they're sort of Bible-only people, and they believe in justification by faith alone in some sense. They're going to have, you know, different sort of debates about what, what those various things mean. But I think there is still fundamental agreement. Now, as I kind of alluded to in my answer to the last question, um, the things that they disagree about, there's sort of two levels of, of disagreement that, that start happening relatively quickly. So, the first kind of disagreements that we have between reformers, really, they have to do with personality, they have to do with theology, and they really have to do with church practice to some extent. Um, I always think you have a really good example of the first two of these. Um, there's this famous story of Luther and uh, Ulrich Zwingli, who is kind of the um, sort of the, the first big name of the reformed tradition that's going to become very dominated by Calvin. So if, if Lutheranism is kind of the, the reformation that's going on in kind of the central German lands, kind of in parts of the south and in Switzerland, uh, the more reformed reformation is, is what's going on there. And, and Zwingli and Luther come together and again in, in 1529. So that same year that that term Protestant is being coined at a thing called the Colloquy of Marburg. And basically what they're trying to do is to have some unity, to have a common agreement. And basically discussions absolutely break down over the issue of the Eucharist. So Luther says, well, there's a couple things that he doesn't like about the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. This idea, not only that you believe in the real presence, but you, you have a great way of telling how it happens. Uh, that the uh, accidents, the kind of physical things that you see, the bread and the wine, um, those things remain the same. But the substance, and using this really sort of helpful Aristotelian language, that's what changes. Um, and again, you have other examples of things like that that happen 
even in the in the natural world. So there's the example of the uh, the acorn and the oak tree, right? Where the substance of the thing is fundamentally the same. It's fundamentally the same thing, but actually everything about what you see and you know you see and I don't know maybe hear if things are falling off the tree or taste if you if you put the acorn in your mouth or try to put the oak tree in your mouth are fundamentally different. Um, so Luther says, well, there's a couple things that he doesn't like about that. One, he doesn't like the uh, he doesn't like the kind of assertion of human knowledge. He just thinks it's kind of fundamentally a mystery. So using using scholastic language is just it's not helpful. He's not interested in that. He's also, again, a bit concerned about the idea that he doesn't like the idea that he thinks that the substance is is totally gone. He thinks, well, the presence of Christ is fully there, but also those things are sort of bread and wine, too. Um so again, you have this idea of transubstantiation, you have this sort of Lutheran view of consubstantiation that's, you know, actually in some ways quite similar. Both of them fundamentally believe in the real presence. And then you have the Reformed perspective, which normally tends to be symbolic, though they take it in different ways. So, you know, uh, someone like Zwingli says, well, you know, when Jesus said, this is my body, he means this is a symbol for my body. My body. And, and Luther and I got to kind of mention this earlier as somebody who like he gets to start fires, but then he doesn't like where they go. He's horrified by uh, Zwingli's um, Zwingli's point of view, and he literally writes with a piece of chalk on the table, um, "Hoc est corpus meum." This is my body, and says basically we all agree to this, or else discussions are over. And really, um, things kind of fall apart. So. Again, you can see there, you, you've clearly got issues of theology at a pretty fundamental level. Something like the Eucharist is really important to, I mean, really to all Christian traditions, and particularly to, to Lutheran and Catholic ones. And again, he fundamentally sees that, that Luther sees that Zwingli is really compromising this. Also, you can see personalities at play. You know, Luther's a big personality, and he doesn't, doesn't really like it if people disagree with him. Um, so those, that's kind of the fundamental level. But then also between these two traditions, between the sort of Lutheran and Reformed traditions, you're going to start having cleavages that open up in terms of, well, how does church practice play out? So can you have icons in a church? Should you have organ music, for example? Whereas, and, and here is kind of interesting, because again, Lutherans tend to find themselves in a more sort of moderate camp. So Luther says, well, you know, icons aren't, they're not mentioned in the Bible, but they're not necessarily forbidden in the Bible either. So it's, it's, they, they use this wonderful word, adiaphora, coming from Greek, in different things. They're just, they're in different things. You know, don't get too bothered about them. If they're really causing a problem, then maybe don't have them, but they're kind of okay to have. Whereas, you know, ref, uh, folks in the Reformed tradition look at these and they say, well, these are idols. These are clearly idols in, in, you know, in the way that kind of an Old Testament king like Josiah or, uh, you know, just I would want to want to destroy these things and purge worship. So, and you have that. It goes on several levels. So again, there's sort of the visual that we talked about with icons. You have a similar thing that happens with music. You know, is what is music for? Is can you just have these beautiful choruses, or is something like an organ? Does that overpower the meaning? And fundamentally, that's then a problem for worshippers. So, you have this kind of break between. Uh, Lutheran and Reformed. And again, it's personality, it's theology, and it's kind of um, also this these debates over church practice. Now, weirdly, considering that we've just talked about the differences, these are the guys that most agree with each other. Because 
all of these groups, whether the Lutheran or the Reformed, they take for granted who should bring about Reformation. So I guess in an ideal world, the church would bring about its own Reformation, but they don't think the church is doing it. So they think, well, we have to cede that power to uh, secular authorities, to princes, to magistrates. Uh, again, Luther at one point calls, he calls princes emergency bishops. Uh, <laughs> but the problem with that is that, well, that kind of begs some troubling questions. Well, what if the authorities themselves are fundamentally corrupt? What if the social order is wrong? What if the things that have previously been seen as really fundamental to a lot of European society, so swearing oaths, uh, which is really central to a lot of how the Middle Ages, uh, medieval men and women kind of organized their society, or even fighting wars. What if those are fundamentally offensive to the God of the Bible? What if things like infant baptism that have been this long tradition in the church, what if those things are fundamentally wrong? Um, and so what you start to see is, well, Lutheran and Reforms kind of agree with that. And sometimes we call them magisterial reformers. Hence that from that Latin word magister, which means like teacher or ruler, uh, and really from where we get the word magistrate. Uh, you know, the, the idea that, well, Reformation should be enacted by rulers. And then you have other people for a variety of different reasons who kind of opt out of that, who say, well, maybe we should take the Reformation further. So maybe it demands certain rights for peasants. And then you have the big peasant wars in the middle of the 1520s. Or people who say, actually, maybe infant baptism just doesn't count. I'm looking at the Bible, and I don't see a lot of examples of that. You know, when John the Baptist is going down to the, uh, down to the River Jordan, it doesn't look like he's sprinkling water on some babies. Um, and you have these groups that push even further. And again, their points of view, in some ways, they're, they're the hardest block to describe. Sometimes they're called Anabaptists, this idea of like rebaptizers. Sometimes people just refer to it as the radical reformation sometimes. And again, you've got all sorts of different people that basically, you know, people who are fairly, you know, have, have relatively similar theologies to Luther or Calvin, but just want to push certain aspects further to you actually have people that, that are, that are verging into the kinds of things that you're eventually going to see, you know, really, really spread in Europe. So things like, uh, anti-Trinitarianism or, or, or other groups as well. So actually you have these sort of two levels of breaks. There's disagreements at the sort of fundamental level, and then there's deeper disagreements. So again, that's again, a long winded way of answering this question of there are fundamental unities. It's not only that, you know, Protestants disagree about, uh, about Rome or about, about, you know, certain features of the church. There are some continuities, but there's also immediately ruptures. And those ruptures just kind of happen at several levels and really aren't, there's there's never really a point where unity, despite really honest efforts on behalf of several different church communities, is ever at play. Uh, the the Archbishop Thomas Cramner, who's the first um, Archbishop of uh, the Church of England after Henry VIII breaks with Rome, really wants to get a Protestant council going, uh, one that would kind of have an authority that rivals the Council of Trent that's going on in the middle of the century, and his efforts really go nowhere. <laughs> well, this leads really well into my next question, I think. And 
you know, this show is called The Cordial Catholic, and so obviously I have a particular bias. I'm a convert. I was an evangelical, non-denominational Christian. I became Catholic after digging into some of this stuff, you know, church history, history of the canon, which I want to talk about as well, the early church and typology and these kind of things. And obviously I came to see a problem with how I did Christianity, separate from what I believe Christ founded with the church, um, which I found to be the Catholic church. And with this next question, I want to be careful to ask it charitably and, and fairly, but for me, it was a biggie. It was a pretty huge question that I asked and drew some obvious conclusions. And that was the idea of what happened once the Bible and Christianity were kind of pulled out from under the authority structure of the Catholic Church. You've already kind of began to touch on this, that kind of right away some things began to happen. I want to be fair and ask you from the perspective of history, you know, what kind of happened next to Christianity once the Reformers left the authority of the Catholic Church and began to, as you've kind of alluded to, had some agreement, some unity, but then, you know, pretty quickly maybe went a different direction. So what kind of begins to happen? I, I think on one hand, I think that there is, and, and this, is, this is one area where I think really smug Catholic commentators from the 16th century, they say, you know, kind of like Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof, you know, one little time you pull out a thread and where has it led, where has it led to this? So, you know, it's so kind of, the whole thing kind of unravels um, and, and they get to say, well, look, you know, this is just going to lead to chaos and confusion. And when it does lead to some chaos and confusion, they and many of their descendants, it's, it's really easy to say, I told you so. Um, but I also think, you know, when I study this, and I think I maybe want to reframe your question just a tiny bit and say, oftentimes the story of the Reformation gets told as a story of kind of like resistance to authority. That it's that you have kind of, you know, Luther, this, this kind of monk standing up to the overarching authority of the Catholic Church. And, and particularly to the papacy at the top. And I think sometimes as somebody who spends a lot of time in the 16th century, I think there's ways in which that we can overrealize how much authority is going on in the church and really how much authority that you have in, in society. And I think part of that is because we live in very authoritarian ages. Again, the kind of ability that we have to police ourselves and other, again, we're going through these real discussions about, you know, what, what is helpful about a police force, what, what is not. In, in an era where actually, you know, communication takes a long time and th there's a, a considerably smaller population, authority actually plays a really different place in your life. It's, it's an essential one, and I don't mean to suggest that there aren't real authorities, but that those authorities have certain boundaries. Um, that it's, it, The Reformation really isn't fundamentally a story about this rejection of authority. I think there is a rejection of authority, but I think the great loss and I think the tragedy for everyone, for Catholics, for Protestants, is that there's fundamentally a kind of loss of community that happens here. And particularly, I, what I see is happening is that you have a loss of the kind of interpretive conversations. Again, anyone who spends time reading about the Middle Ages knows that there's all sorts of disagreements going on, political, social, intellectual, um, in some ways, you read a document like Thomas Aquinas's, you know, great summa, and what it's doing is it's it's not saying you shouldn't have debates. It's performing for you how to have debates well in a robust community. And I think at its best, that's what parts of the Middle Ages offer, what this sort of larger community of 
um, of society and, and of the church kind of offers. And that's what seems to me is fundamentally broken at the Reformation. Um, there's a famous moment when Th- Thomas More is, again, sort of pulled up on uh, these charges of, again, sort of treason to do with uh, with uh, being against the royal supremacy and the king's uh, the king's marriage to Anne Boleyn, the sort of uh, annulment of his first marriage and marriage of Anne Boleyn. And he's basically, he's convicted on perjured testimony that he probably never said. But once he's already been convicted, he's still going to, he's going to have his moment. And so he gives a really famous speech. And in his speech, he talks about, you know, kind of my, my accusers, you have the sort of authorities of this present moment. But on my side, I stand with kind of the whole community of the church and of the councils going back. And I think that there is kind of a real loss of that, that you have, you know, you have national churches that get formed, you have um, various other kind of blocks, whether it be they political or religious or interpretive traditions. So people are saying, like, I'm a big student of John Calvin or others. But I think that there's a real loss in the ability to sort of speak to one another. I think also the Reformation and a little bit the sort of Renaissance and sort of humanism before it, it seeds a distrust in the past. Um, again, even uh, medieval has this, uh, the word medieval comes from medium avum, this idea of a middle age. And basically, you have kind of good classical antiquity, you have like the world of these great Roman Latin orators and great Greek philosophy, and you've got this world of the Bible. And then you just have like serial decline, you have sort of the dark ages. And then, you know, fortunately, Renaissance humanists are able to sort of pull it up. And then Protestants kind of hitch their star to that as well. And there's this kind of distrust of the past. So I can't help but thinking that the real consequence, besides the kind of social cacophonies that the Reformation does breed, like I think the Reformation does have to answer to some of the violence that we're going to see, particularly in the next century, when Europe, you know, kind of goes into this cataclysm of violence in the Thirty Years' War um, in the 17th century, that, you know, these kind of, that you've created these religious divisions, um, those are those are an essential building block for that violence. But I also think just at a fundamental level, you have a loss of community, of actual community in terms of, you know, other people that you'd have conversations with, but you have this loss of community with the past. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's, you know, that a loss is felt differently in different Christian traditions, but I think it's, you know, almost everybody has that because you start parceling up. So, you know, Protestants latch on to those final works that Augustine writes that from which you can adduce certain doctrines about predestination and other things like that. Protestants latch on to other, uh, particularly his early writings, those kind of dialogues that he writes as an early, uh, as kind of an early convert. Um, and it's, it's sort of too bad because you have a temptation. There's a temptation of lots of these scholars to kind of proof text Christian history to say, well, it really just backs me up. And we invent things to be able to do that more precisely. So we invent um, verses in the Bible to be able to say, well, precisely here is where it says that. We invent the footnote, you know, kind of starts to appear in this time to be able to say, we'll say. And on one hand, these are things that are good. They're, they're checking the excesses of people's statements when they're just kind of, you know, blandly making, making claims that aren't verifiable at all. But I think it's an indication that there's been a loss. And again, you were talking before about biblical interpretation, about looking, being able to read things literally and allegorically and, you know, tropologically and all these different things. 
Whereas I think in the 16th century, there's a move, particularly on the Protestant side, to say there's one meaning. It's, it's a very literal meaning. Or, or it's allegorical in this particular circumstance that backs up what I'm saying. And I think, I think everybody loses out on that. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. I think, I think is, is the great loss. <laughs> you know what, John, you've put that so, so well. I love that. The idea of this loss of a community. I, this is, this is interesting. I mean, I, episode 68 of this program, I had a conversation with, uh, Dr. Doug Beaumont on evangelical deconversions from, uh, and a Catholic response to that kind of in response to some of these more famous, more recent evangelicals who have famously left the Christian church and become agnostic mm. or atheist and kind of written about it or put it on Instagram or Twitter. And so we had this conversation and Dr. Beaumont is a bit of an expert on the paradigm shift and he's also a convert mm. from evangelical Christianity to Catholicism. And so we had a great conversation and it's it's been very widely shared and loved, which I appreciate. And out of that conversation came this Twitter dialogue I had with one of the people that I, we talk about in, in the program. Yeah. He reached out, we were chatting back and forth, and I was trying to explain, and, and you have said almost exactly the same thing that I said, uh, so I feel, I feel vindicated because <laughs> you're an academic and I'm just whoever I am. <laughs> but I tried to explain to him this idea of scripture and tradition, and this different way that I, as a Catholic now, understand Scripture versus how I did as an evangelical. And it's what you're describing here. And this is what was lost uh, at the Reformation, in a sense, is this this stream of tradition in which we're interpreting and talking about Scripture versus how I would have done, say, quote-unquote, Scripture as a, a Protestant evangelical Christian, Whereas me and my Bible and maybe some theologians I'm bringing in, but none of us kind of agree on the same. We agree that we're using the Bible to interpret these things, understand it, but we're not in the same stream necessarily of history and this continuity that that I feel that I found as a Catholic convert. But mm. trying to explain this to this this guy on uh, on Twitter in a conversation, this evangelical, he came back and said, like, you know what, yeah, I, I like that idea, that picture of this community of people agreeing on this thing, and here's how we do it, and here's how we interpret this thing. And I like that sense of being in continuity with, with history there. And when you said about this idea of, of what was lost at the Reformation, uh, coming out, uh, you know, leaving the Catholic Church, these different Reformed groups, mentioning tradition just reminds me of this so so strongly, because this is what mm. I was trying to articulate, and then this evangelical I was speaking with came back with this idea that I thought, yeah, that that is what I'm trying to say, that the difference in what happened at the Reformation, I guess, is, like you say, this kind of breach of community. And, and we lose that. We're not, we're not playing on the same court anymore, even if we have the same ball. <laughs> I don't know why I'm using a sports metaphor. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a huge sports guy, but you know, does that make sense, what I'm, what I'm rambling about there? No, I, I think it does. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing that actually I find really encouraging because I think it's a real place for profitable ecumenical discussions. And again, I've, I've been a real student of this by watching, again, one of, one of my old professors and, and someone who's, who's influenced my, myself a lot, uh, Hans Borsma, who uh, used to teach at Regent College. Um, and he's, he's, again, coming from a Protestant evangelical tradition, looking at profound ways of recovering the tradition. Again, he's a, he's a patristic scholar and theologian. Um, 
And so I think there's there's just so much fruit for those kinds of ecumenical discussions about that. And I also think it actually picks up on some of the best things in the early Protestant tradition. So there are there are these voices that I think I kind of lose out a little bit. So I always think of Luther's Luther's kind of right hand man is a a young and very brilliant scholar named Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon is, in his early life, overshadowed by Luther. In his later life, there's kind of a break within Lutheranism. Uh, Melanchthon decides that he will accommodate some of those. Again, we talked about the religious uh, settlement that the Holy Roman Empire is trying to impose, and hence that protestatio. Um, he decides later in the century, after the, the emperor has won a pretty decisive victory against some of the Protestant princes, that, that he's going to accept some of those things. Um, and he basically gets hated on by by part of Protestants. There's a kind of Nicio Lutherans, the true Lutherans, then the Philippists. Um, but he's this thinker who is kind of is responsible for for again what's what eventually becomes known as kind of Protestant scholasticism of again trying to hold on to very many of these things even within the framework of evangelical belief. So I think there are. These, these very learned, and you could cite, you know, many other examples of Martin Busser and Strasbourg and, and, and others who, who really are doing this early in the century. Um, and there are these really striking stories of Protestant Catholic conversations, people that are in dialogue. And I think in some ways we have the opportunity of being able to take up where they left off um, to kind of to try to think through this well in a way that actually makes sense of this depth of tradition and that is taking seriously the stuff that one finds in Jerome and Augustine and, you know, all of these great expositors of the early centuries for whom, you know, for whom their writing isn't meant to, if anything, their writing is commentary on scripture. It's not, it's not meant to replace scripture or anything like the kinds of sort of barbarous things that sometimes people suggest that it that it's doing. So I think, I don't know, I see a lot of hope in that as well. Like I, I resonate with the, the story that you're telling um, because I think not only is it a way for us to better understand our past and these kind of sort of sad breaks that happen at the 16th century, but I think it's hopeful in our present <laughs> looking towards our future. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Okay, so for me, for me, the canon of the Bible was one of those important things that got me first interested in looking into church history. Uh, I, it was a Protestant pastor, actually, I was working for who first asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? And it was that question which kind of launched me eventually into my journey into becoming Catholic based on some conclusions that I made when I followed that question to kind of its end. So the question of scripture and the canon of the Bible has always kind of deeply interested me since it literally began my journey into the church. Yeah. So I wonder what you can tell us about, I mean, the Bible became central, of course, to the Reformation. This is the one thing that the Reformers, the early Protestants, agreed on. What impact did the Reformation have on the canon of the Bible and just I mean, how the Bible was used kind of in general following the Reformation? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is actually one thing that's quite striking in that, you know, I think it's not, it's not an overstatement to say that the Reformation really results in the definitive statements on the nature of the biblical canon in both Protestants and Catholics. Um, in that, you know, Trent is what kind of formally closes the canon, or like really defines that for Catholics. The, the Luther Bible is, is really kind of what establishes the paradigm in, in a slightly different way for Protestants as well. Uh, and it's, again, it's helpful to bring the Orthodox into this conversation because the Orthodox have a more open-ended uh, 
kind of perspective towards the canon. Um, embracing both a kind of larger, particularly this larger Old Testament with the what, what Catholics call the deuterocanonical books, what Protestants call um, the, the call the Apocrypha. Um, so, so the Reformation really is this catalyst in in a particular sense for really you know when you suddenly have people say, okay, I'm going to do this by Scripture alone. You of course has to ask the question, well, what exactly is the Scripture? And you have this definition in a new kind of way. Again, I know you've done a um, You've you've done an episode at least one on this particular issue, um, so I won't I won't rehash the whole the whole story. But you have this interesting question going around, particularly uh, about canon, going all the way back into the Hebrew Bible. And again, there's some debate about is the canon something that's fixed in you know sort of by the time of Christ, or is it something that's very open ended? Uh, and that's that's a very live debate. Um, but one I think that's that's itself really valuable. Then again, in the early church, you have this that question is opened up even further because so much of the early church is working from the sort of class of Bibles known as the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament. Then on top of that, you have you know various of various church communities and church fathers that that then particularly. Um, particularly certain ones of them, because of decisions that have been made in Judaism, kind of want to either keep this larger Greek canon or move back to the kind of first century, or what we know for sure is sort of a first century Jewish canon. Um, so you have these kind of, these real books that are contested, you know, books like Wisdom and Sirach and Judith, and um, which, again, I suggest that everyone ought to read. If you're, if you're a Protestant and you've never read those books, read them, because, you know, even the Luther Bible says these aren't to be made scripture. You know, you're not to make doctrine from these, but they're edifying stories. You should read them. Uh, so I think nobody, even in the Reformation, thinks you ought to, you know, get rid of these books from the Christian discussion. Um, and yet there are things that, I mean, a lot of Catholics don't know them, even though they're in their Bible. And a lot of Protestants don't know them because they're, they've been excised, uh, from, from the Bible in left, unless you happen to have, you know, a kind of, uh, uh, an, an NRSV Bible that, that has an Apocrypha in it, or you're reading an old King James or something like that. Um, but so you basically have in the early church a kind of difference of opinion about these texts. You know, I, in some ways, Jerome becomes one of the one of the key figures for a smaller canon. And again, this is this is oversimplifying something that is really complex. Augustine becomes the, the kind of what would be the the opposite of that one who pushes for a larger canon and whose whose theology becomes really important, not only for this view of the larger canon, but for this notion that actually scripture and tradition are kind of mutually uh, are a part of a, a discussion together. So Augustine, when he is, he's talking about why one ought to pray for, pray for the dead. You'll notice that anyone who's read uh, Augustine's confessions will have encountered this beautiful moment kind of at the end of his autobiographical kind of narrative where he asks for prayers for his two parents. And it's the one time that he names his mother, Monica, as he's asking for you to kind of remember her uh, at, 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 at prayer, and particularly during during the liturgical service, the Mass. Um, but when he when he explains, well, why do we why do we you know why why would we pray for the dead? He gives two 
two options. The first is he cites Second Maccabees and says, well, this, this happens. And he, he seems to say that's part of the canon, which someone like Jerome might disagree with and, and other fathers disagree with. Though lots agree with him as well. Um, but he also says, well, this has, been the, this has been the practice of the church. This is what we do. This is something that was passed down. So there's this connection between scripture and tradition. Um, but again, you do have, there is this slightly more open-ended debate about some of these books of the Bible. And it's basically what has kind of continued in the Orthodox Church right now. Now, enter Luther. Um, and Luther's really interesting on the Bible because Luther is a radical when it comes to the Bible in a way that I think few people really, really spend time thinking about. And, and most of his spiritual descendants uh, really, really don't think a lot about in that um, you know, so he doesn't just sort of follow Jerome and saying, well, some of these books should be kind of consigned to an appendix, the Apocrypha, and you shouldn't make doctrine from them. Um, but he, he goes even further. Again, he says that a book like Esther, he's, I wish it hadn't even come down to us. We should take that book out of the Bible altogether. Um, and again, he, you know, he, he actually does a really similar thing with the New Testament. Which is interesting because you have, you know, well, you do have some of these debates about exactly where the boundaries of the Old Testament are among the church fathers. Uh, you have, you know, you and you do have some debates about the boundaries of the New Testament, but this has been really established. It's a, it's a pretty firm teaching within Christianity. And though you're starting to have some humanist voices that are questioning certain texts, um, Luther really is is kind of stepping out when he says, you know, he says James is an epistle of straw, and he he puts James, Hebrews, Jude, and Revelation in kind of their own appendix. And again, a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know, if you're if you're someone, you know, if you're Luther and you you have this idea of you know justification by faith alone, that's the gospel, that's what I've read, and you know, he he finds it in Romans. Uh, sometimes he interpolates it. There's this this famous. His, his translation of, uh, what is it, uh, Romans 3.28, he writes this again, you know, we are now, uh, what is it, we now maintain that man becomes justified without works of the law by faith alone. And, of course, the alone, that German align, it's not in the text. He, he puts it in. And again, that's the kind of thing sometimes translators do to, like, bring out the sense of it. But But he has this idea, look, this is fundamentally what the gospel is about. Well, when you have something like the Epistle of James that says something very different to that, you can see why it'd be sort of tempting to remove. Um, so one of the things that's really fascinating then about about Luther's Bible is is Luther doesn't kind of you know do as as we have kind of in this discussion say, well, look, you've got this precedent in the Old Testament. I'll apply that to the New Testament. He does it the other way around. He he starts by translating the New Testament and is kind of chucking things out that he thinks are problematic or reducing them to a status. Again, he, he he does it the other way. He'll kind of play favorites too. He talks about the uh, the the Gospel of John really is the only good, like it's the true, pure, good gospel, um, which is itself kind of striking. So Luther can really play fast and loose with Scripture in a way that actually makes many of his contemporaries. Um, nervous and I think notably really isn't replicated. Again, Luther's kind of Luther Bible, again, that, that does become a certain paradigm for, for biblical text, but you don't really have, again, Protestants pretty quickly lose that sentiment of maybe we should just chuck these other books out. Uh, and again, you know, you, you or I or, or others who, who grew up in, in various Protestant churches, I, again, I grew up as a kind of as an evangelical Anglican, um, I, never, I never would have heard 
the idea that you'd pull any of these texts out of the Bible. That would have, you know, that's that's kind of ter- that, that would have been terrible theology from our point of view. And and you know, thank thank God for that. Um, and so you have, you know, so you have this kind of explosive um, settling in with kind of what what the Protestant text of Scripture is going to be. And in some ways, that echoes these earlier debates that we've had about the Old Testament. Other ways with the New Testament doesn't echo them at all. Um, And then you have, you know, Trent. So the Council of Trent happens uh, between uh, 1545, 1563. So sort of right at the center of the 16th century. And in 1546, you have uh, a declaration on the canon of Scripture. And it basically upholds that larger canon of scripture. And I think one of the things that, that I think is, is often misunderstood about that is the way the story is told is often, you know, you have Luther puts out his Bible in the middle of the 1530s. And then about a decade later, you have the kind of Catholic response. And I think there can be the assumption that kind of the Catholic response to that is, well, the Protestants have said this, we're going to say the exact opposite. And I really don't think that that's the case. For a couple of reasons. One, in terms of the debates that are going on at the council, um, it's quite clear that the council fathers don't think that they have the right to have a smaller canon for, for several reasons. One, because they look in the early church and they say, Augustine and Jerome disagreed on this. So what we would have to do to be faithful to that witness is leave that open. Is, is have, you know, is, is kind of continue with that. Moreover, they're looking back at the Council of Florence that happens in the middle of the 15th century in 1442 and discussions that they've had with the Orthodox that actually break down um, sort of subsequently, but that there is this possibility of unity. And actually, they think that the deliberations that have happened at Florence are determinative, that they don't have the right, especially without conversation with the Orthodox, to kind of weigh in on uh, weigh in on the scriptures in a definitive way. So there is this sort of definition in the West, but it isn't actually a broadside against Protestants. It's more of an ecumenical overture towards the Orthodox. It's more of a, a way of kind of trying to keep, when we talked earlier about conversation, and about trying to keep this patristic conversation open. Um, so again, those are the kinds of things that are happening with the canon of Scripture. It's notable, too, that these discussions are happening against the backdrop of a technological revolution, you know, this, this information revolution. And, you know, again, I think we should spend more time thinking about it and talking about it in our day and age because we're going through an information revolution that I think is parallel to them in, in some ways, that, that the kind of printing revolution and the way that that allows for opportunities of new learning, new dissemination of ideas, but also for kind of a cacophony of just disinformation and misinformation um, I think that there are some real parallels between their period and our period. And I think one of the things that is, is really happening with the Bible is, is, again, you know, we've been talking about the canon, we've been talking about the text, but actually the text itself can be produced in new ways. So in some ways, the Bible itself is moving out of its sort of primary context being a liturgical one. You know, of being a place where, um, you know, where, where like the the word of God is encountered, but in this particular context of liturgy, which again itself has a much more sort of holistic view of scripture and tradition, because you're encountering it as part of the liturgy, versus 
um, other contexts where suddenly it could be something that you read on your own, that you debate with your friends at the bar or, or various. And it's not that those discussions haven't happened before, but they're suddenly able to happen in, in new ways. And I think there's something actually really significant about that, that sort of the way we read the text it also means that you can kind of cut and paste it in a new way. If you have, you know, if you have kind of a set text like the the Vulgate, that's kind of well, this is more or less the text that people are using. There's there's different there's different revisions that are happening at, at different times uh, that hold sway in different parts of Europe. But uh, this kind of a set text, it kind of makes sense in the context of the sort of printing revolution. That suddenly you'd also start changing kind of well, what what's within these pages as well. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things that was a revelation for me that you just mentioned is the idea of the scriptures would have been read and almost primarily read, I think, if I'm if I'm, if I'm correcting this, in the context of the liturgy. Maybe because I mean you hear this trope too that the Catholic Church had the Bibles chained to to the you know, to, to the uh, the pulpit in the church. I mean, I think partly because they were so expensive, <laughs> maybe in one part. But I mean, suddenly the the it, it's possible, I guess, be, because of technology, to read the scriptures out of the context of the liturgical setting, which is the context, if I understand this right, that they were always intended, or at least they were kind of created and put together for that kind of setting. Yeah, there's certainly a primacy of that setting. Like we obviously, there are people reading this in different contexts, right? There's, you know, Origen is sitting and reading these texts in a, in a deeply monastic context. Or we have, you know, Augustine is reading the, uh, the epistles of, of Paul seemingly in kind of their, their own edition when he has his famous kind of take up and read, take up and read experience in the garden in Milan. So there are these extra liturgical settings, but I think that, that the primary focus of the Bible throughout most of his, history in this liturgic, liturgical setting kind of matters, too, because it actually bears on what, what exactly is the canon. Because, you know, again, even we look at, at moments in the text of Scripture and in the kind of citations that we see in the Church Fathers, it seems like there are other texts that are in some sense inspired. Uh, again, in, in in Jude, there's 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 references to to texts that are in nobody's canon, um, and it seems like there's something beautiful and spiritual and true there. But as the canon is established, again, some of the things that we you know when we actually look at kind of um, essentially the 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 records from early synods, we have a couple from North Africa um, that are I think largely saved due to their connection with with Augustine and others, but. We actually see that the text of Scripture, kind of what is defined as the canon, are those books that can be read in church. Or, um, again, even those fathers that are a little bit um, a bit nervous about parts of you know, what, what Protestants will call the Apocrypha, Catholics will call the, the Deuterocanonical books. You know, they say, well, look, maybe those books shouldn't be read in church, but they should be read to new converts. Or something like that. So it seems like for most of Christian history, that idea of canon was fundamentally connected to what is read in church. What is read in church is also what you would want to make doctrine from it. So there's a much more kind of holistic. Now, again, there's there's also a huge gain for being able to read the Bible in, in sort of a, in new context to be able to like, you know, you have cheap print where somebody can read it at home. Uh, the idea of that is is largely phenomenal. Um, you have Erasmus famously has a, um, he has a, uh, um, 
a passage in his um, Periclesis, which is the introduction to his New Testament. And he kind of imagines that travelers walking down the road would regale each other with Bible stories. He thinks women that are sitting and spinning, someone could be reading from the Bible as well. And he has, um, I always tease one of my best friends is Irish, but he, he says like, even maybe even the Scots and Irish could read the Bible. Um, and I, I like to, I like to bring that up to him. Um, so there is something really good that's going on about this kind of shift and the new possibilities that technology is making possible. But it also means that the kind of implicit connection that I think most people have between the text of scripture, the liturgical setting, and therefore the the tradition and even the sort of interpretive traditions that are fundamentally connected to to preaching on these things week in and week out, you know, they get a little bit thinner. And I think perhaps they are at other points in Christian history. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this before I hit the record button. Of course, that always happens. The idea of kind of being handed a Bible when you become Christian. I mean, I became an evangelical Christian when I was around 15 or so, you know, in high school, radically saved. And it was a really meaningful time in my life. And I went to the local Christian bookstore and I just bought a Bible. Literally was just handed me off the shelf. I had no context for how it was put together or how it should be read. And of course you can you can gain, you know, I could I could I can learn those things. But there's such a difference that comes out of the Reformation, and it's partly technology, it's partly that cheap print, but also again it's this kind of splitting away from this stream of thought of how things were looked at and interpreted. I mean, good. Yes, we can we can sit and spin our our yarn and and read from the Bible. You and I, <laughs> that'd be fun. But there is something else that's going on there that that ends that that kind of the end result, at least for me in my life, was me being handed a Bible in this Christian bookstore and kind of being sent out on my own to find a community that fits my understanding of how this thing is supposed to be put together and find people who kind of agree with me and my understanding of this Bible and read it. So there is this, I mean, it's an interesting thing that kind of comes out from this technological revolution coupled with the Reformation and this kind of situation. I mean, there's a lot in there to kind of to kind of think about and to put in its right place in history, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. A revelation for me was looking into the history of, of the church and this thing called the Counter-Reformation. I mean, I, I heard of the Reformation. I had an idea what it did. Of course, not a great idea of what it did. And this is certainly helping to, to inform how we can talk more meaningfully about these things. But I remember coming across St. Francis de Sales and being completely blown away by the way that he wrote in response to some of these Protestant reformers. I'd heard it's evangelical about the Reformation, and it was meant to fix this broken and misguided church, but I never heard about this actual response, this counter-Reformation, and I was shocked by the kind of things people were saying, some of these, the, the writings of, say, DeSales, who kind of went, okay, so you guys are trying to fix this, but who gave you the authority to just make your own thing over there, <laughs> in one sense, kind of what, what he would say. And kind of, you know, if... if if we're thinking about the Reformation as this idea of, hey, you got to fix this broken thing, well, I was shocked to learn that the Catholic Church kind of responds and says, well, okay, let's let's start fixing it by doing this. Can you talk to us a bit about what happened as in the Counter-Reformation and, and the importance of that? Because, I mean, that I think is kind of surprising to learn about too. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think you're right that it's something that's just it's really omitted 
from a lot of again really popular accounts. Again, it's there's there's very lively historical discussions going on uh, about the Counter Reformation, or as it's more often called now, the just the the, the Catholic Reformation. Um, but I think that there's in some ways there's there's I think a sort of straightforward reason why I think a lot of people really don't have this sense of the the, the sort of Counter Reformation in their mind. And I think part of that is the the original view of what the Reformation was. Again, going back to the 16th century itself was really Reformation is something that Protestants do. Catholics almost by definition they're not reformers. Like they they need to be reformed. They're they're not reformers. So you have this view, and that that really persists until about the 19th century. Um, this idea of counter-reformation comes from, again, kind of one of the most important uh, sort of hi- historical voices in both professionalizing history and making sort of sources the key thing for history. Instead of just like reading other people's accounts of what happened or chronicles, actually going back to original sources and questioning things is a, a German historian named Leopold von Ranke. Um, and Von Ranga, on one hand, yeah, he's, he's trying to push back, and he wrote a very famous several-volume history of the Pope. Um, and so on one hand, his view of the Counter-Reformation is to say, well, look, the sources seem to say there's a lot more going on on the Catholic side than that sort of traditional narrative that occludes uh, Catholic reform would seem to say. Now, on the other side, um, you know, the sort of Counter-Reformation, really, it's fundamentally a reaction to Protestantism. Again, Ranka himself is, again, despite a certain kind of open-mindedness, again, he writes this very thorough history of the popes, he's also the son of a Lutheran minister. Um, so I think he, he brings his own bias to it. He has this, but he gives us this idea of the counter-reformation, the gegenreformation, as, as he calls it. Um, and there's sort of this idea, and, and this really persists until relatively recently, that, well, there is a counter-reformation, but it's, it's largely kind of a reaction to Protestantism. It's Catholics, either they're sort of cleaning up their mess um, or sometimes they're even responding overbearingly to the Reformation. So they have the Council of Trent that's seen as very authoritative. We think of that adjective tridentine. And sometimes if, 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 if someone happens to be like uh, already enamored with the Catholic Church, uh, tridentine can be a good word. Sometimes if, if you're not enamored with it or even even in some Catholic circles that are very tridentine is kind of a bad word, uh, but also oftentimes included with the uh, the kind of counter-reformation are things like, you know, the Inquisition that resurges in, in Spain and in uh, Italy and other places, or things like the Index of Forbidden Books. And those are part of the story. Um, but increasingly, scholars have moved away from this view of the counter-reformation as fundamentally reaction to say, well, Actually, no. There's a Catholic Reformation that's going on, and that that term has, is kind of uh, is is really starting to be used a lot in the field uh, to replace Counter Reformation. This idea of Catholic Reformation, and part of the reason for that is, well, one, you got to tell the full story, and two, you got to get the timeline right. And so, one of the things that scholars have done is they've said, well, look, we're going to go back and say, well, how does the Reformation start? Does the Reformation start with Luther and his 95 Theses, or as kind of I suggested in the earlier um, in this sort of first question that we had, actually, does it maybe start with this larger quest for reform? So they go back to places like Spain at the beginning or the, the end of the 15th century, where you have actually some really remarkable 
um, pushes towards reforming the church, towards, again, fixing some of the problems that different monastic orders have, or producing new and better texts of the Bible for critical study, you know, any, any of the kind of things that are going to become hallmarks of the Counter-Reformation, well, it seems like those are alive and well, you know, uh, decades before Luther. So you have this kind of chronology problem. I think also you just have this this point of view of, you know, encountering many of these individuals. You mentioned Francis de Sales, but you could mention Charles Bromeo. You could mention um, Teresa of Avila that I had the good pleasure of being able to teach this year, um, Ignatius of Loyola, some of these incredible figures. And telling their story, um, they're vehement Catholics. Uh, most of them don't have, don't even, yeah, they're, they're not, they're not, um, they're not pro-Protestant, but they're reformers actually in some very similar ways. Um, and I think one of the things that's actually very helpful is to say that a lot of Catholics agree with Protestants when they're describing abuses. Where they disagree is in solutions. Um, and they think that a lot of the baby is being thrown out with the bathwater. And so you have these features, you know, someone like Ignatius Loyola, Ignatius of Loyola and both uh, uh, Teresa of Avila, both of them spend so much of their career under scrutiny um, and and looked at as figures who who might be kind of revolutionaries because they're pushing for these like these are actually really profound, interesting reforms, but they're kind of reforms on behalf of the church in a, in a different kind of sense. So I think actually having this sense of the Catholic Reformation as part of the Reformation, one, it just, it fills in part of the story that we miss. But then it also, it does something really helpful because we actually get to see that there are these different re- Reformations happening at the same time. We've got this Catholic one going on. We have that magisterial Protestant one, the one we were talking about, like Luther, the Lutherans and the Reformed, those who kind of want civic rulers to make the Reformation. And then we have this more radical one where people are pushing the boundaries. And all of those are happening simultaneously, and they're influencing each other in some really interesting ways. And kind of attending to that uh, is really significant, is really is sort of valuable. So I hope that gives you some sense. And and part of what I'm saying is just a plug for the Catholic Reformation. Spend time with these figures. They're they're truly amazing. Again, the past the past couple of years, I've I've had the good fortune of being able to spend some time reading uh, the writings of Ignatius of Loyola. And a couple of years ago, got the chance to. Um, to actually, uh, you know, spend some time in Rome and get to see again this kind of, you know, his 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 desk and the little icon above it, and kind of the the room where he dies, and you have this incredible figure who is pressing for reform, and again creates the the most sort of dynamic religious organization that we have in terms of you know globally this this organization that you know Jesuits within sort of almost decades of their creation are all over the world they go to you know they go to Macau they go to Goa they go to Japan they're um, and they're setting up schools for education they're writing hymns they're again doing all of these kinds of things and I think they should just they should continue to just be examples for us so in some ways digging into this period whether you're Catholic or you're Protestant is is powerful you'll you'll encounter these figures that are worth spending time with um, and again Francis de Sales who you started with is a perfect example yeah I think something so fascinating for me was that this whole thing was happening I mean the picture that I had of kind of the Reformation was, I mentioned before, this idea of scraping the barnacles off this ancient kind of politicized, ritualized, kind of pharisaical kind of thing here, the Catholic Church. 
And then once that was done, the reformers went over here and did this Protestant thing, and the Catholic Church kind of just kind of toddled on down the road until we have kind of today. That was kind of my really terrible perspective on the Reformation, because the reality is, no, you had these figures who, who are working really hard to bring about you know, the, this Reformation, which also happened, and I love how you put it that this way, of the Catholic Reformation. It, I think that does. That's a fundamental reframing of this thing. This happened here and also over here for very similar reasons. And, and you know, it's, it's important to underscore because for me that was totally brand new, that, the, that I thought that what the Catholic Church was just kind of kept on going and the Reformation fixed that and was over here. And, I, and hey, I was an evangelical, so I was part of this camp that fixed this thing that was broken, not realizing that there was this Reformation happening within the church as well, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. All right. So I want to ask you one last question. And this has been, I hope listeners love this conversation because I've really enjoyed speaking with you. <laughs> it's been a great time. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed it myself. Well, I'm, I'm glad. Uh, and I want to ask you this one last thing. If you could give the audience, those listeners who are non-Catholics or new Catholics or even the long-time Catholics, if you could give them one takeaway, what would you want them to know and be able to talk about when it comes to the Reformation? Yeah, you know, that's, that's both a good question and a really hard question. <laughs> um, again, one of the problems with spending a lot of time reflecting on a particular era of history is, you know, again, when people tell you to bottom line or to narrow it down to one thing that people should take away from it, it gets really hard. However, um, if I were to try to offer one kind of takeaway about the Reformation, it's I think I would say that, you know, I want Catholics and Protestants to kind of remember that it's a story that includes us all. And again, this is sort of building on what we've just discussed in the last uh, question. And again, we've hinted at this, I think, throughout our conversation. Again, Catholics need to remember that they were part of the Reformation. Again, when you look at various sort of architectural features of a parish, or you think about something like going to a diocesan seminary, or again, you even say the second half of the Hail Mary, you're participating in innovations of the Catholic Reformation, of kinds of things, you know, features of Catholic life that are revived, that are put into practice in new ways in the 16th and 17th century. Again, also, as we've mentioned, like, you know, just take the opportunity to spend time in the company of these figures of, you know, of Loyola or Avila or Brumeo or, you know, you know de Salles. Likewise, I think it's important for Protestants to remember that, again, the Reformation isn't this straightforward story of sort of progress from darkness to illumination. Again, it's this muddled story in, you know, of the sort of shattering of Western Christianity, which, again, results not only in the kind of estrangement of Protestants from Catholics and Catholics from Protestants, but even from Protestants from each other in terms of these various groups. So again, basically, I, you know, if I were to bottom line this, I want Catholics to realize this is their story too, to not hear the word Reformation and say, that doesn't apply to me. And I want Protestants to try to seize hold of what kind of story the Reformation actually is. And, you know, I believe that these kind of little shifts in our perspective really can radically reshape both how we think about this shared past and I say that deliberately because it is a shared past and how we strive 
together towards trying to, you know, pushing towards more meaningful unity in both the present and the future. <laughs> Very well said. Great way of putting a cherry on top of this conversation, I think. Hey, John, I want to say thank you for being here. This has been an absolute pleasure. Is there somewhere you want to point listeners to go where they can maybe follow you and what you're doing or some resource or something that you think that they should be checking out? What do you, what do you want to plug? What do you think? Trying to, try to think if I have, if I have plugs right at the moment. Um, again, I, uh, you know, in, in terms of the things I'm doing, you know, you you can you can read the more kind of esoteric stuff that I that I write if if you if you'd like that. Um, but I'm also like again, you know, feel free to engage with me on Twitter or, uh, or other social media. Again, my my Twitter handle is really just my name, John Reimer, which is kind of I had the like fortunate good luck of stumbling on Twitter so early in the game that that was the case. So uh, that's a place for for more discussion if if folks want to do that. Again. I'm always really happy. Again, we were talking earlier about when, when you suggested doing this podcast, I was you know very excited to do it because I love these conversations, but I immediately thought, oh, these are other conversations that you could have with other great individuals. I was talking about my friend, uh, Matt Thomas, who teaches at uh, the Dominican School of uh, Philosophy and Theology at Berkeley. Um, you, you can check out, he's got a great new book that, that's about to come out. Um, another, another resource that I might plug, uh, uh, Brent Sackles, um, who who is in uh, in Saskatchewan has just had an amazing new book, which uh, well, I say amazing, it looks amazing to me. I haven't had a chance to read it, and I've heard him I've heard him speak on it before, but I'm really hoping to get my teeth into it. It's a wonderful book on transubstantiation and looking at the ways in which having a better understanding of that doctrine actually might open up some ecumenical discussions very much along the lines of this podcast saying actually we have a lot of misinformation so those, so those are two things that i would plug um i don't know i, I, always, I always think of, of very much like augustine i always just say to people like take up and read <laughs> <laughs> this is great and here's a guy who just plugs everybody else and his chance to, to share what he wants them to check out i love that that's fantastic John, thank you so much for being here. I want to say God bless you. God bless your family, the fantastic work that you are doing. Thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Anytime. Thank you once again for your time, for your attention, for uh, listening to the episode of The Cordial Catholic. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I had a fantastic time. I mean it when I said that I made a friend at the end of the show. I I really did. I, I truly have. And it was wonderful to speak to Dr. Reimer. Hopefully you enjoyed that too and learned a thing or two that you can share going forward when you discuss the Reformation. That's the whole point of the thing. TheCordialCatholic.com is the website for this podcast. CordialCatholic at gmail.com for your feedback, for your topic suggestions, for your notes. Tell me who you are, why you're listening, and why, oh why, (laughs) you keep listening. (laughs) It's sometimes a mystery to me. But hey, thank you so much. At CordialCatholic is the Twitter handle. TheCordialCatholic on Twitter. Facebook and please do subscribe to this podcast, follow it on Spotify, leave your ratings and reviews wherever you can because those help to push the podcast out to new people. 
That's really appreciated. That's the whole mission, the whole point, the whole purpose of this thing. So thank you. Patreon.com slash Catholic to support this show on a monthly basis or paypal.me slash Catholic for a one-time donation. It all goes right back into the show to help pay for hosting costs, equipment costs, and all those things that help to keep this show going and growing. Thanks so much, guys. Know that I'm praying for you each and every week. Please pray for me too. And guys, I'll talk to you next week. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.